Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Synapse podcast. Today, we are very lucky to be speaking to Professor Andrew Kornberg, who is a pediatric neurologist and a senior neurologist at the Royal Children's Hospital, where he was also the director of neurology for 15 years. Thank you for being on the podcast, Prof Kornberg. Thank you very much for asking me. No, it's great to have you. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and your clinical and research interests? Sure. Um, So I'm actually a paediatric neurologist, but I'm actually dual trained. uh, So I'm both adult and paediatric, but predominantly in adults, I look after neuromuscular disease, whereas in children, I predominantly uh, look after all types of uh, disorders in in children, Um, but I have a subspecialty interest in autoimmune um, neurological diseases, which brings us to Guillain-Barre syndrome and MS, but also have been involved with research in the muscular dystrophies. And indeed, um, I'm part of the neuromuscular clinic, which I established um, about 15 years ago at the Children's. Yeah, amazing. You have quite a few areas of expertise And today we will be discussing two autoimmune demyelination disorders that you have particular interest in, namely MS and Guillain-Barre syndrome. Why do you think it's important for medical students to understand these disorders in particular? Well, look, I think um, we're going to be talking a lot about autoimmune diseases and they're they're a spec, you know, essentially Guillain-Barre is peripheral nervous system uh, with demyelination where MS is a central nervous system demyelination, and we could even touch upon um, variants uh, of MS if we have time. Um, But, you know, I think everyone's got to realise that autoimmune disorders uh, are becoming more common um, everywhere. So uh, I'm not sure whether you know that uh, conditions such as uh, insulin-dependent diabetes, uh, uh, type uh, 1 diabetes, uh, the actual um, uh, frequency of it has grown exponentially over the last few years, as has ulcerative colitis, inflammatory bowel disease. Um, and so autoimmune diseases are becoming more common. Um, there's a whole uh, lot of theories about that, um, And we have seen that in MS uh, in children. Uh, When I came back uh, from the States after training there, uh, I would see one child with MS every couple of years. And the children sees um, all kids with uh, MS in a sense, but one every two years. But now I'm seeing um, in this year, calendar year 2021, we have diagnosed 10 children with MS. Um, uh, So it is much more common and it's probably got to do with gut immunity. We're probably too clean in our lives nowadays. Um, You know, eczema, all these other autoimmune issues are becoming more common. So I think um, talking about autoimmune diseases uh, to medical students in particular interesting things such as MS and um, Guillain-Barre syndrome is worthwhile, Um, uh, simply because you'll see uh, these cases as you go into into hospitals over the next few years. Um, So I thought that would be two good topics 
uh, and they do illustrate autoimmune diseases generally. Absolutely. There has been quite a notable rise in autoimmune diseases in recent years. Um, so would you be able to highlight the similarities and differences between MS and Guillain-Barre in terms of clinical presentation and pathophysiology? Sure. So, look, I think we've got to really uh, look at these disorders as being uh, two different disorders. One central nervous system, one is peripheral nervous system. The common feature is, in fact, an effect of myelin, uh, but the pathophysiology is very different. Um, uh, for example, with peripheral nerve involvement, there's a breakdown. The blood nerve barrier is actually very, very close, and the blood nerve barrier breakdown is a lot easier in comparison to something like MS, where you have the blood-brain barrier, and that uh, barrier is much more uh, difficult to break, uh, in a sense. So, again, Beret, um in some, in, in a sense, is a little bit easier to understand. Um, uh, with MS, you still have um, your own immune system thinking that your myelin in your central nervous system is foreign and you then have an immune response crossing the blood-brain barrier and then you have uh, the development of a disease which we call MS versus um, Guillain-Barre syndrome. Um, uh, again, you have some environmental trigger usually that uh, starts the autoimmune process and then you have an effect on nerve. Um, there's similarities uh, in that you usually have um, a breakdown of tolerance uh, in both disorders. Um, in Guillain-Barre, it is usually a one-off. Uh, you don't get recurrent Guillain-Barre. If you get recurrent Guillain-Barre, then you have another disorder called chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, or CIDP, whereas MS is a chronic disease all up and you are going to have recurrent episodes of demyelination over life. Um, in children, there is a condition called ADEM, which is acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. It has the same pathology as someone who has MS, but that is a single event uh, and usually does not recur. It can recur, but it usually does not. It's usually a one-off. Um, but again, the it is something about a single that person that's their genetic makeup, plus usually some environmental trigger starts the uh, loss of self tolerance and then uh, creating an autoimmune process, either Guillain Barre or MS or other autoimmune diseases. Um, but if we want to talk a little bit about one and the other, we can talk about the different presentations and um, uh, if you want to discuss it that way. Yeah, it would be good to do a quick overview of the key different presentations if you could. Sure. So if we think, let's start off with Guillain-Barre syndrome. It's uh, a simpler way to explain um, that as a disorder, but Guillain-Barre syndrome is a uh, disorder where there is demyelination occurring in the peripheral nerve. Okay, um, so the common thing is there's something about a that person will come into contact with some environmental factor, 
There's been a variety of different viruses associated with that, as well as um, gastrointestinal infections, typically Campylobacter jejuni, where there is um, that uh, event occurring in that person, and then you get this breakdown of self-tolerance and then the development of uh, the autoimmune process. So in Guillain-Barre syndrome, because it affects nerve and you have demyelination, then the predominant uh, symptom is weakness, sometimes preceded with some numbness or tingling because nerves do three things. They um, have sensory uh, fibres, they have motor fibres and autonomic fibres, so you have an effect on that. And the presentation is usually tingling for a few days in their feet uh, and then uh, the development of an ascending paralysis. Um, so you get um, a predominantly proximal weakness, but an ascending paralysis is a good description. And then if you think about it, it can then affect respiratory uh, muscles and other muscles because if it's severe enough, you will have difficulties with respiration and may need to be on a ventilator. So that's the usual um, uh, tempo. It's over a week or two weeks um, with a presentation, and it can be mild. Some people might just have some sensory symptoms and may never, ever be diagnosed to a person who has the weakness but still ambulant, still walking, to a person who has such severe disease that they need a ventilator to you know, live, to survive. Um, and in those patients, uh, typically autonomic disturbance can be a problem. So you can have high blood pressure, low blood pressure, um, temperature uh, dysregulation, et cetera. So it's, that's what happens with the Beret. Um, uh, the management is really supportive. Uh, so um, if someone needs a ventilator, you're putting them on a ventilator, plus treatments uh, which will immunomodulate the um, effects of the autoimmune process. So um, typically there's been two um, treatments in uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome that have been shown to be equally effective. One is IVIG, intravenous immunoglobulin, uh, and I, I'll touch upon that in a second, and the other one is plasma exchange. We believe um, that in Guillain-Barre syndrome, there is uh, B cells involved, um, but we don't know. There are some antibodies that sometimes are associated with Guillain-Barre, but it's different in every uh, person. Um, and IVIG works by using pooled um, gamma globulin from thousands of people. Um, and we don't know exactly how it works, but it probably blocks antibodies, um, can um, uh, create, um, uh, you know, um, an effect where there's blocking of antibodies uh, and stopping um, the antibodies affecting the nerve. Plasma exchange is where you essentially filter out all the antibodies in a person's uh, blood. So in a sense, uh, they both work and um, uh, they are very, very effective um, in, uh, in, in the patient. So in children, IVIG, by giving them an infusion, 
is definitely a lot easier than doing plasma exchange. In an adult, you could do both, but IVIG is usually given simply because it's a lot easier to administer uh, than plasma exchange. Um, um, you would you might think, oh well, you know, I know steroids can stop um, immune processes. Steroids do not work in Guillain-Barre syndrome. So that's uh, an important message. So it's either um, IVIG or plasma exchange as a treatment. Um, the recovery of a patient who has um, uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome is usually over weeks to months, depending on the severity of the disease. Um, but with treatment, it's not uncommon in children that they go from not being ambulant, can't walk, might be bed bound to within days walking. Um, uh, in plasma exchange, uh, it's the same. Uh, but the, the aim is to make a diagnosis early and then treat early. So therefore, um, the recovery is much faster. So the next uh, aspect would be how do you diagnose Guillain-Barre syndrome? So as you can hear, it's a syndrome, okay? So there is no single marker that will identify that as being the diagnosis, okay? Um, we've got the clinical uh, symptoms and signs, which I've described, um, essentially weakness. The clinical findings may very well be some sensory abnormalities, particularly distally, absent reflexes. Um, they may have, you know, in 50 to 70% of patients will have some facial weakness um, as well or may have some swallowing issues, et cetera. Um, so you suspect it by, by the tempo, the, the acute onset of the weakness with those clinical signs and investigations that can confirm the diagnosis includes um, nerve conduction studies. Uh, so we give a little electric shocks to the nerves um, and then we measure the responses. So myelin is important in the speed of your responses. So you will see slow nerve conduction studies. You may see what we call conduction block which means that the myelin is focally um, abnormal and you don't have the typical response going out to the muscle. You have a block of uh, um, uh, the muscle potential. Um, other confirmatory tests include a lumbar puncture where you measure the protein level, okay? And the protein level is elevated because you have demyelination closer to the spinal cord. So it increases the protein. Um, and an MRI can sometimes show that same um, proximal demyelination, so you can have enhancement. Then you look for other reasons. You might look at their stool, for Campylobacter jejuni as the trigger, or viral studies, et cetera, uh, to try to work out what that trigger is in that patient. Okay, So that's really the presentation, the diagnosis, and we've talked a little bit about the two treatments that have been shown to be effective. Um, there are new treatments being developed, um, but we don't know uh, about whether they will work as well as those two treatments because they have not been compared as yet. I see. 
So now that we've covered Gillian Bure, let's move on to MS then. How should a medical student approach taking a history from a patient with suspected MS? Sure. So um, typically patients with MS um, will present with um, an abrupt onset of some neurological symptom, okay? And if you think about the brain, and I'm sure you've looked at the brain, there's myelin, there's cortex, there's, and everything goes in um, in its own place, okay? You have optic nerves, you have, um, you name it. The good thing about a neurologist, our job is when someone presents is for us to localise the symptoms to a part of the nervous system, okay? And that's what you need to be doing as well, okay? So if someone has right arm weakness, well, where could that be? Well, it could be... Um, in the cortex on the left, it could be in the uh, white matter on the left, it could be in the brainstem, it could be in the spinal cord. So you use other signs to actually try to localise where it is. But to answer your question, so when a patient presents with a neurological symptom, you have to say, all right, this fits in, um, in a part of the nervous system and because this person is young, um, I worry that this could be an episode of demyelination, okay? So it could be person presents with optic neuritis, which is inflammation of the optic nerve. And what is the consequence of that? Your vision is impaired. You, you might go blind in one eye. Um, and so once you've localised where you think the problem is, you then do investigations to confirm your clinical suspicion and um, an MRI is the typical thing that you would be looking at. So in MS, you would see demyelination occurring uh, on the MRI in the area that you expected that problem to be. Now, in MS, it's a chronic disease, okay? And what we know um, studying lots and lots of people with MS, you have many more relapses on scans in comparison to clinical relapses, okay? So someone might present with their first episode of optic neuritis. You do an MRI, you see that the optic nerve is inflamed, but you see lots of other lesions in white matter in that patient. And that is because the brain can be um, affected silently. So you can have recurrent episodes of demyelination and you wouldn't even know, okay? So with MS, um, what your history needs to be about is looking if there were previous episodes of some unusual neurological symptoms because to make a diagnosis of MS, you need to effectively have um, uh, episodes of demyelination in time and place. Okay. So if you have, uh, so that's what you're looking for. But now we use MRI to help um, work out whether there is place and time. So you can use the MRI as one of those factors. Many years ago, you'd have to have two clinical relapses to make a diagnosis. But now we use the clinical history plus the MRI to put that together, okay? And then you would do other investigations 
such as CSF examinations and other lumbar puncture to show that there are antibodies being made just occurring in the spinal fluid, okay? Because MS is a autoimmune process of the brain. So what you see on the spinal fluid and you take serum plus the CSF at the same time and you will see abnormal bands in the CSF but not in the serum. And that tells you that there is intrathecal antibody duction. Okay. So um, hopefully I've answered your question about the, what you obtain on the history. Well, it is what is the event, how long it's been happening, is there a trigger, uh, and then you localise that to the nervous system. And then the second question is, have there been previous episodes um, noted or um, have occurred but no one's really taken notice of it, okay? Because yes. there can be a few years in between, okay? Yes. Um, any okay. questions about that? No, thank you for that comprehensive um, answer. Could you tell us about what the management looks like then for these um, patients? What do you think is the long-term outlook for MS patients? Sure. So, look, once upon a time there was very little, but now there are um, uh, many, many different sorts of drugs and different classes of drugs to help in MS. So, as I said before, MS is a chronic disease and you have recurrent episodes of demyelination, more commonly you would see de more demyelination in the, on scanning than clinical episodes. What we do know is that if you can suppress these episodes of demyelination, the outlook is significantly better over, over time. So just to put into perspective, um, once upon a time before treatment, um, a person who had MS for 10 years would progress where they may need a cane, all right? All right? So whereas now with treatments, it's probably double that time or even longer. Maybe they won't ever need any aids to help with ambulation. So the medicines can be injectables, oral infusions once a month, and there's different, different types of medications. All of them have made an impact on the long-term outcome. But the whole aim is to suppress um, episodes of demyelination, and the way you follow that is by MRI, um, uh, MRIs every six months as a follow-up. And what you're hoping is you're not seeing any new lesions occurring in the white matter. And those patients, that's the aim, because if you can do that, the outlook is actually very good. Mm, we've certainly come a long way in treating MS, and I think it will be exciting to see what the advances are, even in the next five to 10 years. Well, I think that might be a good place for us to wrap up this episode. That was a very helpful rundown on MS and Gillian Barre, and I've certainly taken a lot from it, as I'm sure the listeners have. So thank you, Prof Kornberg. We really appreciate the time you've given us today. Thank you for having me and hope to see you at the children soon.